I'm Jafar Latif Najjar. My guest for this podcast is Dr. Timothy Stacy. He's a lecturer in religion and politics in Leiden University and a visiting professor at the Center for Studies in Religion and Society, University of Victoria in Canada. Tim explores the myths, rituals, magic and traditions that mobilize people to take ethical and political action. He undertakes ethnographic research with a range of actors as well as developing theories, tries to learn lessons upwards to the convention politics and upwards to activists and practitioners most recently he is applying his expertise to explore the transition towards environmentally friendly behaviors he regularly collaborates with researchers and practitioners both within and outside the academy to explore how their work can change minds and behaviors he is co-convener of alt vision a network of academics activists and artists exploring the alternative visions and epistemology technologies that can inspire people to collectively confront global challenges most recently his help has been enlisted to increase engagement with climate change mitigation tim is also author of a book entitled myth and solidarity in the modern world in this podcast we are going to discuss adim's coming book in bristol university press which is about the spirit of political participation and where elaborates how myths ritual traditions are useful in saving liberalism from itself i hope you enjoy this discussion Tim welcome to Global Development Review podcast and thank you very much for accepting my invitation it's been very nice to have you here and also learn from your work I was going through your book and it's very inspiring and fascinating work that we're looking forward to it. My first question to you is about your upcoming book. So in your upcoming book and the title is Saving Liberalism from Itself and actually it's brought me to the question that are you suggesting that liberalism is falling down? and how and also please tell us something about your book and the project which is coming up sure uh, and first of all you know thanks very much for uh, having me here and congratulations on the podcast um i can't wait to uh, hear the future podcast and we always have such lovely conversations so um, i couldn't imagine being interviewed by a more lovely person so thanks um yeah in terms of uh saving liberalism from itself that kind of controversial title i am indeed suggesting that uh liberalism is failing in some way um in order to explain that i just want to be clear about a couple of things i guess uh first of all i would want to distinguish as other people like uh john milbank have between liberality and uh liberalism so you know liberal liberality is the feeling that everybody deserves equal dignity regardless of their background and positionality and and that's something that i'm all for but what i argue following others is that liberalism fails to get us there so you know when it comes to liberalism uh, somebody like uh, helena rosenblatt has just written a wonderful book explaining that when we look at the history of how the term liberalism has been used 
is actually quite different from what most people mean when they criticise it. And although I think that's an interesting point, I do think it's important to acknowledge that there has been a, an interesting critique of um, what has been called liberalism over the last sort of 50 years or so. Um, and it doesn't much matter to me uh, what the name of that is. Uh, we might call it uh, state and market underwritten individualism or something like that if we want to. Um, but there is a lot of literature around the use of this term. And uh, it's important to recognise that they're not just talking about uh, a kind of uh, chimera or something. So liberalism, as I see it, and as I say, following others, begins with the celebration of the individual, who's ideally uh, free from any kind of unsolicited external influence. And then it needs to come up with a way of finding agreements, public agreements, that avoid this kind of uh, domination or influence. And this is uh, secular rationality. And so the idea here is that political programs and projects can only be legitimised um, on the basis of arguments that are, at least in principle, agreeable to all people. So things like myths and rituals and magic and tradition, they all have to be kind of eradicated from... Uh, public life. And unfortunately, I argue, this kind of logic leads, leads us down a couple of directions simultaneously. So the first is that every individual has their own truth, uh, at least in principle. Uh, every individual has their personal idea of how the world should be. And that means that any institution we wish to join must match up with this idea. And so we see a proliferation of diverse institutions, uh, new churches, new political parties, new trade unions, new kinds of movements, all of them slowly creating a slightly new agenda to speak to a slightly um, different uh, part of the population. And then the second avenue is that in order to protect people's rights to only enter into institutions voluntarily, we need um, a kind of super institution, uh, and that's, that's the state, that enforces people's rights. And so then, in addition to that, because we also need people to uh, connect with one another, interact and exchange, we need another mechanism, and that's the market. So then, in order to ensure that these institutions run smoothly, they need to be managed by uh, experts, university-educated people who can work out what is required in society, work out a way of delivering that, and, and then do so. And so I kind of argue that this is where the kind of failure comes in. The situation we've been in and the last few decades is that people no longer really have the desire or even the capability to come together across di uh, differences to challenge these super institutions. So I'm not necessarily arguing as um, others have in a kind of uh, Republican tradition prior to me, somebody like Robert Putnam, for example. 
I'm not simply arguing that there's a decline in all forms of engagement, say. Not at all. I, I'm suggesting there's a decline in the nature of engagement. So that people may still be willing to um, participate in movements and political processes and uh, engage in different kinds of volunteering. But all of the institutions they engage with are becoming increasingly individualised. And in order to challenge the super institutions of the state and the market, actually people need to be able to come together across differences to challenge those institutions. And that's the part that they're less and less um, able to do. Or perhaps that they um, need to do that now more than ever and, and are struggling to do so. And then finally, all this kind of explodes, as we've seen in the last few years. So people are demanding that they want to take back control, um, or that they don't believe in experts, or that they have alternative facts. And we've seen that in relation to, to Brexit, to mass migration, and even now to COVID on quite a large scale, where people are unwilling to uh, believe scientific experts that they should be taking uh, vaccines. And so then I kind of asked myself, well, what do all populist movements of both the left and the right seem to share in common? And that is that they revive exactly what liberalism has eradicated from public life, the myths, the rituals, the magic, the traditions. Um, so then my question became, can we revive them in such a way that maintains this core liberal principle of giving equal dignity to all, regardless of their background and positionality. And yeah, and that, and that nonetheless um, engages a broad range of people in the political uh, process. Yeah. So sorry for that long diatribe. Um, but um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Yeah, you know, interesting, like, uh, I was also I mean, reading the part of your book where you argue that myths, ritual, magics, and tradition can help us to rediscover the spirit of political participation. So, first, I just would like to uh, know from you, like, what do you mean by the spirit of political participation in your book? And also, why this is important? in reimagining actually modern society as you have already shared like you know the the disconnection which is ha which is happening or which has happened between market society and states so how do you see that this is uh, you know very useful kind of perspective that we can reimagine the societies through myths ritual traditions sure thank you um, so first of all i'd want to say that you know, I recognise, by the way, of course, that the word spirit may for some people be instantly associated um, with uh, maybe religion generally, perhaps Christianity in particular. And I just want to stress that that's not where I'm coming from. Uh, I'm actually more interested in the word in the way that it's been used in things like uh, in anthropology in terms of the spirit of the gift. Um, but also in popular parlance, such as uh, team spirit or community spirit or the spirit of uh, 45. But then I do mean something quite specific as well, in the sense that I'm really referring to uh, what I've recently started calling, and, and, and haven't got there in the book, kind of more than rational elements. Um, 
the myths, rituals, magic and traditions that actually motivate people to engage uh, politically. But I also like the more kind of casual or popular way that the term is used because I think we do need to rediscover the spirit of political participation in the sense that it's just important, just as important to engage people in the process of making politics as it is to deliver to them, say, what they need. And I guess you could say that what I'm encouraging is a kind of shift from maybe a service model of politics to a participation kind of model. And so what I try to argue in the book is that what's absolutely fundamental to engaging people in the political process um, are these kind of more than rational elements, these spirited elements of myth, ritual, magic and uh, tradition. Yeah, and I, I'm just thinking because I was recording another uh, interview yesterday about Sufism uh, in, in Pakistan and my guest was talking about how, you know, Sufism is uh, helpful in, in spiritual healing and also it is helping mobilization of communities. I was thinking in that way. But myths, ritual, tradition could be different and, uh, and then political participation and also kind of democratic setup or the agenda of state or liberalism in other sense could be you know on different trajectories so uh, I was just thinking when I was reading your book I was thinking that how do we see the relationship between all these like myths tradition ritual are they interconnected with each other or like uh, yeah maybe you could explain about it mm, yeah sure thank you um, so, I want to say first of all that, say, theoretically, if I were to take a kind of structuralist approach, um, the way that I've talked about these categories might be very different. Or to put it another way, I'm not really taking a structuralist approach that says, this is what myth always looks like, and this is what ritual looks like, and this is what magic looks like, and this is what tradition looks like. Uh, instead... I'm kind of saying, which might be a kind of structuralist claim, I guess, that each of these elements are important, and then what does it look like to rediscover them in a way that honours the liberal ideal of um, giving equal dignity to, to all, uh, regardless of background or positionality. And so then I can talk about how they're interconnected, but it's interconnected on the basis of that question that I'm asking, rather than that they're necessarily interconnected in any context in the same way. Um, so what I kind of argue is that, first of all, people operate on the basis of kind of myths, not purely on the basis of rationality. And that's even true uh, of liberalism sort of ideal citizens, the kind of uh, university-educated, uh, deeply say, rationally thinking uh, person who is able to understand multiple different perspectives and put everything in context based on evidence, even they are inspired ultimately by stories. And I kind of tried to show this in my myth chapter by talking about how the participants in my research who are essentially community organists organizers living in uh, Vancouver, uh, Canada, one of what I argue is one of the most liberal cities in the world, um, 
how even though they've already decided maybe morally what is the right thing to do, they still require myths often in order to get them there. So they might want to uh, engage in helping refugees because they've decided perhaps that they don't necessarily believe in, say, nation-state boundaries and something like that. But they still want to kind of gear themselves up to get there. So they start watching videos about other people doing the same thing, uh, reading stories of others, and then it's those stories that help them get there, Hmm. rather than uh, the kind of philosophical stance that they've taken. So in that sense, myths aren't a challenge to rationality, they actually, I kind of argue, that they supplement uh, rationality. They help people to act on what they believe to be uh, right. And then there are a range of kind of stories that are told in different uh, settings um, that can encourage people to act in different ways. And in terms of the liberal setting that I'm talking about and, and one that's aimed at bringing people together across differences... All of the myths are really about great heroic individuals that give up on some of their uh, privilege in order to participate in a community setting. Or they are about how a community has saved an individual um, from suffering in some way. And so they build up stories about um, the individual entering into the community. The way that that is related to ritual in my setting is that most of the rituals are around the telling of stories. And this is really trying to address that question of how do you have these kind of spirited elements in a liberal setting? Uh, Because many of us know from uh, different uh, historical periods, but also from maybe our own contexts, Um, the Indian context uh, perhaps being quite a good one that it can often be quite dangerous right when people start employing uh, myths in Mm. politics Mm. and so what the rituals I observe are around are about how people cultivate spaces in which they share their own myths and most importantly listen to others Mm. Um, And so they create this sense of solidarity through recognising the other, learning to listen to them, helping one another to tell their stories. Um, Sounds a bit like old visions. I was just wondering, like, when when you were talking about it, like, how, you know, do you think that myths, ritual and tradition also shape the culture, identity and politics of a particular place, uh, society? How do you think about it? For example, in context of India, we were talking about it. So it has, you know, shaped new political identity or discourse on the basis of mm-hmm. myths, rituals and traditions. And mm-hmm. and it is it is sometimes, you know, harmful to certain communities. So, uh, yeah, so that that's what I was thinking about it. Like, do we think that it shapes the politics and culture of a particular society and then the discourse afterwards? Yeah, um, so in terms of that, uh, it's a question that often gets raised uh, with bits of my writing. Hmm. There's always this fear of what will happen 
if you say allow myth and ritual kind of back into uh, the political process. I think that fear kind of speaks to or demonstrates the power of the narrative that I'm trying to uh, undermine through writing this book, namely the the liberal one. And, and, and the problem being that we have tried to remove these aspects from the public sphere and the political process. Mm. And what we're seeing now is the failure of that. Mm. We haven't managed to keep them out. And so my argument is not that there is no danger. Of course, of course there is. Um, but that these are sort of inalienable elements of how people engage with the world. Mm. And so the only way to combat those dangerous myths that were so that we find so problematic is with more hopeful ones rather than simply by deconstructing them and busting them i do think it's an important exercise um, which is particularly drawn from the history of sociology right the kind of uh, foucauldian approach to to deconstruct the kind of narratives that people work with and demonstrate the ways in which um, they are wielded um, by those in power to um, create societies in their own image. I think that's really important. At the same time, because I think these elements are inalienable, I, I think we also need a kind of, say, positive school within uh, social science that is about building alternatives uh, and that's, that's kind of the work that I'm trying to contribute to. And, and th this could be a continual debate between uh, me and anyone, I suppose. Uh, but personally, I, I just am no longer sold on the notion that we can remove these elements and construct a politics based on a kind of transcendent rationality uh, that, that will somehow um, be devoid of these um, I think when you look in a, a situation of conflict and you really have to challenge a, uh, a venomous, hateful narrative, you do that by using um, a hopeful, loving narrative, hmm. not by trying to um, employ some kind of uh, common denominator rational discourse. So yeah, that, that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah, no. It it also brings me to my question. Next question that you have written in your book. I'm quoting it. Aim of peace loving people should not be evolved without myths, but to replace divisive myth with hopeful myth. So this is what I think you have written in your book. But uh, again, it's the same question that I think you will face m many time about your argument that you know that. Don't you think building a society on myth might challenge to scientific rationality? And also, what if those who are in position of authority, they just misappropriate or manipulate, uh, you know, this notion of hopeful myth? For example, mm. if we look into the current populist regimes, they are using a kind of narrative of myths and, you know, uh, to show something which is, you know, a kind of a vision or, you know, a, a narrative which is fictional to the people and they are coming into majority even in a democratic mm. setup. So what, why I'm asking is, is about 
like uh, I, I really like the idea of hopeful myth and engaging with the community in a peace loving manner but uh, the apprehensions are the the fear that I have is that there are also people in the position of power they want to manipulate these kind of you know mm. uh, narratives so how do we can challenge that mm. yeah so I guess can I just reiterate a point first yeah. and then get a bit more speculative sure, with sure. you on that yeah. so the first thing I, I just want to say is I really just do not think that it is capable it, that we can um, eradicate these what I'm calling spirited or more than rational elements uh, the myths, rituals, magic and traditions um, and I do think that science itself is always even implicitly anchored on these the things that we choose to research um, the methodologies we employ the arguments that we make based on our evidence always imply some kind of more than rational uh, element. So if as a scientist I want to show you that the polar ice caps are melting and that's challenging for uh, polar bears, well, you have to care that polar bears are dying, right? And so that, that, that's implied some kind of sense of emotional connection in the first place. And where's that coming from? It's probably coming from stories of, you know, things like Blue Planet from David Attenborough. Hmm. And the, the narrative and the scientific, scientific fact go together. Um, or if you want to use science to, um, say, demonstrate that uh, global warming is causing uh, mass migration, um, that kind of fact only lands if you care about the fact that there are other human beings suffering. And so again, you need stories that back it up. Um, or if your argument is that you want to stay part of the EU, as, as anybody listening to this will probably tell from my English accent, I'm uh, somebody who's thinking about... Um, Brexit a lot um, and the real you know one of the reasons I really wanted to get into writing this book um, were things like Brexit and climate change and the way that we were losing those arguments because we just kept pushing scientific fact um, and forgetting that we needed to sell a story as well and that increasingly a number of people just didn't give a damn about that story anymore about European solidarity about um, the suffering of people on the other side of the world as a result of um, our actions in uh, the global north or west or whichever term you prefer. Um, so, so, so that's the one thing to stress. But then in terms of like speculation, yeah, because really kind of what you're asking is fine, even if we agree that myths, rituals and so on are yeah. important, then how do we stop people being manipulated um, or controlled or forced to live under somebody else's myth? Um, I do think there's some way to address that. I don't think it's covered in the auspices of this uh, book. And maybe it is to some extent a little bit more in, in my previous book towards the end when I was reflecting on these kind of um, solidarity centres and they would be these kind of non-governmental um, organisations um, or rather quasi-independent organisations that were publicly funded but um, which had complete autonomy and they'd be about bringing people in communities together across differences to challenge often businesses but also states 
So then the state would be funding these organizations that often challenge them. Hmm. Um, and in that way, I kind of started to think you could have less of a kind of liberal democracy and a myth and ritual-based politics at the same time. So that might be one way, but I, I guess what, what, what this is demonstrating is that my thinking is that it's about finding mechanisms that ensure as many people as possible are allowed to participate in the process of constructing myths. So it's not just about what the myths are, but who's engaged in constructing them and, and sharing them. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I I agree with you actually with those points. And but I also what like what you are saying is about the dialogue. I think dialogue and conversation between communities is very important. And I mean it it will definitely change the perspective of uh, other person and also you know understanding the perspective of other other person. So I think even the power the power person person in position of authority attempts to you know capture the narrative of hopeful myth maybe like what you are suggesting is like dialogue with different communities or different people of having different positionalities could challenge you know kind of think that uh, the people in the power of position are manipulating and it brings me to your book where you are concluding with the uh, with the argument of compassionate truth and uh, mm. uh, yeah so and i really like that uh, idea i i think that's the you know kind of that's the kind of solution that you are putting forward in your uh, book towards these challenging challenges so for example i quote from your book where you say that saving liberalism from itself doesn't mean giving up on either rational or confessional truth instead it means balancing these with compassionate truth i think this is what gives some you know hope that how we can move forward and you know challenge challenge those which we are fearing about those aspects but uh, yeah but i i really would like to understand from you what what do you mean by the word compassionate truth and and how it can be useful in saving liberalism yeah well thank you it sounds like um <laughs> you've kind of summarized the intention in my work uh, <laughs> um yeah i i think that's um yeah I, i i like that point um yeah i suppose for me this came from uh, the fact that and this is something I talk about with with colleagues uh, and my partner a lot is that you know I kind of agree that I want to move away from a top-down homogeneity associated with the past where we impose some kind of order on everybody and yet at the same time I often feel that in very liberal settings there is equally this kind of imposition of a set of values an unfriendly um signaling of virtue that makes people feel excluded um and this kind of derives from what i was saying at, at the beginning as as you've just pointed to this idea of um a kind of confessional truth on the one hand and a rational one on the other so the idea that if it's true for me it can't be challenged because that's my truth or then and that's the kind of private one you don't have any right to tell me what to do in my private life or then the rational public truth that is uh basically saying your point is not really valid in this public setting unless it can be logically and empirically uh demonstrated and so if you come to me with your 
I don't know, let's say your argument about um, vaccines and uh, how they um, are part of some grand conspiracy, then the fact that that is not logically or empirically verifiable um, means that you really just should be ejected from the conversation altogether. Or perhaps, um, sorry, I've gone vaccine crazy just like um, everybody under COVID. Uh, The examples I was actually using at the time might be more to do with debates around uh, LGBTQ plus rights or um, something like abortion. And the fact that your position on this... uh, either cannot be empirically verified or is an offence to my kind of personal positionality means I can't have a conversation with you. Um, And we see that from both, you know, I know the terms are somewhat defunct but helpful anyway to say the left and the right, uh, the socially liberal and the economically uh, liberal. And so what I was trying to balance this with was an idea of compassionate truth. Um, and this, in a way, could go back to a Levinasian idea of the kind of face of the um, other. But I think some scholars argue that Levinas meant that in quite an abstract way. Um, I often mean it in a really concrete way, that actually being present with the other person and seeing their face, communicating with them, telling them your story, listening to their story, looking them in the eyes, um, being generous enough to assume that they have good intentions, that they're a good person. Um, That's the kind of compassionate truth, the truth that says um, this is something with a kind of, you might even say, moral spirit sat across from me. who is worthy of my time and attention and, and who is coming from um, a good place. Uh, that, kind of, that kind of truth, um, the kind of truth that many people might not even want to call truth at all, um, I, I think, yeah, is really fundamental for healing a lot of um, wounds in society. Uh, I think whatever your concern is at the moment, whether it's uh, racism or climate change or whatever. One common problem we all have to deal with, which is making all of these worse, is polarisation. There are certain people who, as a result of being forced further and further into a corner, are unwilling to budge on their position unwilling to compromise. So the question for me is how do we come back round a table together and yes, some kind of element of compassion um, needs to be cultivated. This is very interesting work, Tim. I just would like to know when this book is coming out. Yeah, uh, thanks. So it's due out in May 2022. I'm currently going through things like agreeing a book cover, um, which is funny because you're always told not to um, judge a book by its cover, but uh, I'm very much having to try and think of some picture that represents everything uh, being said. But yeah, it it will come out then and um, hopefully we can have more such arguments when it does. We're really looking forward to it. Thank you very much for coming to this podcast and accepting my invitation. So it was really a learning experience and 
lot of reflections. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks.